0: We could just keep singing of the goodness of God, and you know, someday we're going to get to do that, and it will be ever-increasing glory upon glory. We look forward to that day. For now, we are continuing in our series in the Gospel of John. We're still in John chapter 14. Just to briefly review in case anybody's got lost, we are in a series through what is called the Upper Room Discourse, which is Jesus' last long conversation with the disciples before He went to the cross. And in John 13, we talked about how Jesus loves us, and here in John 14, we're talking about how Jesus cares for us. Jesus cares for us by going to make a place for us with the Father. Jesus cares for us by showing us the way to the Father. Over the last two weeks, Pastor Roger and Pastor Danny so very uh, excellently and under the guidance of the Holy Spirit continued in John 14, showing how Jesus cares for us by giving us the Holy Spirit, and Jesus cares for us by giving us peace But we skipped over a couple of verses there. I had originally intended to cover them as part of Jesus' conversation with Philip, which we're about to read together, but realized that these verses deserved a little bit of special attention, so we're going to go back to them this week and next. Reading in John chapter 14, verses 9 through 14, where Jesus is continuing His conversation with Philip. or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves, very truly, remember Jesus wraps up conversations and makes a significant point with these words, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. What remarkable promises Jesus has to give to his disciples. And remember, one of the things that we have been emphasizing is that Through the course of this conversation, they become somewhat disillusioned as they realize that the things that they had anticipated, the great and powerful establishment of the kingdom through the authority of Jesus Christ, was not going to play out like they anticipated. They were waiting for a conqueror and Jesus was telling them that he was going to a cross. They were expecting to lead they were expecting him to lead them in victory over the nations and now he is telling them that he is leaving them. And they will be on their own. And so he gives them the promise, the Holy Spirit is going to be with you. My peace is going to be with you. But he gives also these two incredible promises to his 11 disillusioned disciples. In their fear, in their questioning, in their wondering what is coming next, he amazingly tells them that they will do his work, even greater works, than he had done and that he will do whatever they ask in his name. So we're going to spend some time on these for the next couple of weeks. The first thing that Jesus says in John 14:12 is that whoever believes in me, that is the disciples, that is those of us in this room who are followers in Jesus Christ, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing. And some of us are thinking, okay, I wouldn't mind walking on water, right? Head out there in the lake, don't need my boat anymore. Boat is a pain in the neck to maintain, I'm just going to get my fishing rod and walk out to my favorite spot and catch me some fish, right? And boy, Jesus knows how to catch fish, doesn't He? And I'm going to do that kind of work that He does. And somebody else is thinking, your imagination is too small. I'm going to feed the crowd and not have to lift a finger to do it. <laughs> Anybody want to do that? Don't have to worry about the cooking. Don't have to worry about the cleaning. None of that anymore. Just pray the prayer of blessing, multiply the bread and the fish, and the crowd is fed day after day. <laughs> and we can go through the works of Jesus consider His various miracles, pick out our favorite one and say, that's going to be the one that I want to do. After all, Jesus says, if you believe in Me, you're going to do the very works that I do. Obviously, we are speaking hyperbolically here. Clearly Jesus has something else in mind. In fact, if we consider the words that Jesus uses throughout the Gospel of John, One thing we realize is that there is a difference between works and signs. Jesus talks a lot about miraculous signs, and He talks about the purpose of those signs, which point to who He is. But this is a different conversation in which Jesus is talking about the works that He does. And so, if you start to look through John and and read what Jesus says about His works, one of the things that He emphasizes, and He emphasizes here, is that His works testify about His relationship with the Father. The Father is in Me, I am in the Father, the Father is working, I am working. So these works testify about His relationship with the Father, and the works also are good works. He emphasizes that as he's having a conversation with the Jewish leaders in John chapter 10. He says, I've done all kinds of good works among you. What is it that you want to put me to death for? And that conversation goes on. So, we know that Jesus' works are good. We know that Jesus' works talk about His relationship with the Father, but what are they? We're going to work our way backwards through three different places where Jesus actually talks about His works and what they are. And that, I believe, will help us to understand where He is directing His disciples and where He's directing us in this passage. First of those is the story of the blind man. You can find it in John chapter 9, but you know the story, we've talked about it before. Jesus and the disciples have left the temple. They're walking along. They run across a man who was born blind. The disciples ask him a question, why is this man blind? Did he sin? Did his parents sin? And Jesus' answer is it's not about sin, but rather that the works of God will be displayed in him. And so Jesus makes it very clear that in this passage he is talking about The works of God that He does. And so we might think, well, there's our answer then, because Jesus heals the blind man. And so that's the work of God in this passage that Jesus does. And certainly, to some extent, that's true, but there is a whole lot more going on. An entire chapter is devoted to the works of God through this blind man, not just those few verses where Jesus heals him. In fact, at the very beginning of the chapter, as Jesus talks about this man being born blind and the works of the Father being seen in him, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And the rest of the chapter is not so much about the opening of this man's physical eyes, but rather about how his heart is opened to who Jesus is And it concludes with him leaving his past life, devoting himself to Jesus and following him. And Jesus wraps up the chapter saying, this is the reason I came into the world, so that the blind will see. Not so much talking about a physically blind man receiving his sight, but spiritually blind people having their eyes opened to whom Jesus is, for this reason I came into the world, so that the blind will see, but then also that those who claim to be seeing will be shown to be blind." And there he is talking about the Jewish leaders who do not believe in Jesus. So we see in John 9 that there is some interaction between the physical work that Jesus does and the spiritual work that he is accomplishing in the world as he brings light. This comes out even more clearly if we go back a few more pages into John chapter 5 with the healing of the cripple by the pool. You know that story as well. Around this pool there are crowds of the sick, and from time to time the Spirit stirs the water, and whoever gets into the water first is the one who is healed. And for 38 years This crippled guy had been lying on his mat next to the water, and he was never able to get into the water first. And Jesus comes up to him and talks with him and says, you don't need that water. I tell you, stand up, take up your mat, and go home. And the man takes up his mat and goes home, a wonderful, powerful miracle. Now, there's a problem doesn't really seem like much of a problem to us, but the Jewish leaders had built up an entire set of laws around keeping the Sabbath, I'm not working on the day that God had said is the day of rest. And one of the laws about keeping the Sabbath is not carrying anything. So this man carrying his mat on the Sabbath day is doing work. And the Pharisees call him out, and he says, that guy over there, after some conversation, points out Jesus. And so, another conversation about work. The first thing Jesus says is, my Father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. And then we read these words about the work that Jesus is doing, John chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Jesus gave them this answer, very truly, I tell you, The son can do nothing by himself. See this interaction between father and son again. He can only do what what he sees the father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so they had had their attention drawn to a physical miracle of healing. They were amazed by this physical miracle of healing. Jesus says, there's a greater work, and you will all be amazed, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. The work that Jesus is doing is the work of giving life. He talks about his special relationship with the Father which enables him to do the work that the Father has sent him to do. And the work that the Father sent Jesus to do is to give life. And that's what Jesus went about doing. Yes, He had healed this crippled man. Yes, it was amazing. But something so much more amazing and so much more powerful is going on in this passage far beyond the healing of a crippled man. There is the giving of life. This is the work that Jesus was sent to do, to bring life. And we see it even more clearly just want to make sure that the case is clear in John chapter 4, and that is the interaction with the Samaritan woman. We know this story very well, I hope. Jesus was going from Galilee to Jerusalem. The typical pattern of a Jewish person would be to cross the Jordan and go down and cross back over. And why would they go so far out of their way? Because Samaria detestable Samaria was in between, and a Jewish person so hated Samaria and the Samaritan people that on foot, we're not talking about a little detour, it would go that far out of their way even to avoid any interaction. But Jesus purposefully goes through Samaria, He's tired, they stop by a well outside of a town. The disciples go off to find some food because they're hungry, and Jesus is hungry as well. And so he's by the well resting when a Samaritan woman comes to draw water. And he says, "Will you draw me some water as well. She's shocked. How can you even talk to me? You're a Jewish man. I'm a Samaritan woman. Why would you even interact? How can you ask me for water? And Jesus says, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for water. Whoever drinks water from this well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him, that water will be like streams of living water that overflow to eternal life. Do you see again the contrast between the physical reality and the spiritual reality? The physical thing that's going on here isn't even a miracle, it's just the drawing of the water and the satisfying of someone's thirst. But the spiritual reality is the miracle of living water. And this points out to us how very anemic is our search. For the physical things, even the physical miracles. We see this passage about doing the things that Jesus did, and we automatically start thinking about the signs. And Jesus says, I have so much more for you than these signs. Whoever drinks this water is going to be thirsty again. And those 5,000 men along with the women and the children who ate that bread and fish that Jesus had multiplied. You know what? They kept following Jesus because they knew they were going to be hungry again. And those people that Jesus had healed at various points along the way. You know what? The day came when they got sick or they aged for one reason or another. They died. All of those physical Things are temporary and transient, and they pass away. But Jesus has so much more. He has living water for those who thirst. That is the work of Jesus, leading people to the living water and helping them drink. The work of Jesus referring to the things that He says and the things that He does go far beyond what happened that particular day, or maybe even that miracle He performed, to the greater miracle of leading people to eternal life. And so Jesus is talking with His disciples. They've come back, they've brought the bread, they've said, hey, aren't you hungry? Don't you want something to eat? And this is what he says, John 4, verses 34 through 38, about his work. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying It's still four months more until the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Now, keep in mind, the woman had gone back into her town. She said, come meet this man who told me everything I ever did. And she brought with her across these fields a crowd of the people from that town, all dressed in the the white cloth that they would wear. And so this This wave of white is coming across the fields to Jesus and he draws the disciples' attention to that harvest field. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Jesus' heart is for the crowds of people who are thirsty for living water. Jesus' work is to bring those crowds of people to the source of water so that they may drink. The miracle of Jesus' work is not a miracle so much. It certainly is, literally, a miracle of opening the eyes of the blind and healing those who are sick. But the real miracle, the greatest miracle, is the miracle of regeneration. May the Holy Spirit open our eyes and minds to understand that and to really value that. The greatest miracle that can be performed is the enlivenment of a dead soul. It's the miracle of regeneration. Scripture tells us that apart from Christ, we are dead in trespasses and sins. Our souls are dead. It's not like there's a little spark of life remaining and we're trying to to crawl our way back to God. It's not that we were born basically good and if only we can overcome the evil parts then we'll be pleasing to Him and we'll get there. We're dead. Deader than a doornail. There's no doubt about it. We're dead because our minds have been darkened. The deceiver has perverted our thinking so that we can't even understand spiritual truth without an alivening spark from the Holy Spirit. We are dead because every inclination of our heart is against God and towards self. And even when we do something that seems like it was a good thing, at the root of it is self-righteousness. At the root of it is the idolatry of exalting who I am above who God is. We are dead, but God makes us alive in Christ. And that is the greatest miracle that can ever be done, and that is the work that Jesus came to do. And isn't it amazing in John 17, then, Jesus says that He has completed the work that God sent Him to do. He's referring to the fact that He is going to the cross. And that on that cross, when He takes the sin of all of humankind upon Himself, when He bears upon Himself the righteous wrath of God fully poured out on Him, undeserving though He may be, when He went to the cross in our place and died in our place, He then is able to offer life and forgiveness and hope, streams of living water, and He calls us to drink. So this is the work that Jesus came to do. Everything that He said, everything that He did was pointing people to the Father so that they would drink of living water and have eternal life. And here in John 14, he says to us, you're going to do the work that I have been doing, and then somehow he says, you are going to do even greater things than I've done. How can we do greater things than Jesus has done? It's a question. It's obvious. It jumps out at us. There's no way. I can't go to the cross on somebody else's place. Never mind all those miracles I can't do. I can't die for someone. I can't give them eternal life. How am I going to do even greater things than these? Well, obviously, Jesus isn't talking about qualitatively greater work. Mine is somehow inferior and yours is going to be better. I walked on water, but you're going to what, fly, I guess. He's not talking about works that are greater in the sense that they are even more significant than raising Lazarus, feeding the 5,000 and everything else. He is talking about the extent of his work. In order to help us understand this, we're going to go over to a passage that is very similar to what Jesus had to say in John chapter 4, where he tells his disciples to look at the fields. This is in Matthew chapter 9, where he tells his disciples to look at the fields. Matthew 9 verses 35 through 38, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, this is talking about Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. as he goes through the highways and the byways and into the towns, as those crowds gather around him as, as day and moves into evening and he's healing the sick and he's driving out demons and he's preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, one of the principal effects on his own heart is compassion. He's moved as he looks at the needs of these crowds of people because they need a shepherd. And when he asks his disciples to pray about this situation, what he draws their attention to is the need for more laborers. Let's kind of put this in geographic terms and demographic terms in our context. As Jesus is going through the towns and villages of Galilee, He basically covers an area that would go from Willow Springs to Durham. You might say Wake County, some of Durham County. That's the extent of Jesus' ministry in Galilee, a population similar to the population of the Research Triangle Park area. So you can imagine Jesus in his itinerant ministry, going to these towns and villages, stops in Fuquay, skips over – no, doesn't skip Holly Springs, goes to Apex, up to Cary, heads over to Durham. The crowds gather around. He's carrying on his ministry of healing. He sees these people, these vast crowds of people, and he is only one man. Now, we're not putting aside here the deity of Christ, okay? We absolutely affirm Jesus is God and man, but that does mean that He is a man. He is bound by the limits of flesh and time. He can't go to all of those villages at the same time. He can't speak to all of those people at the same time. He sees these crowds, these multitudes who need the living water, and He says, who is going to reach them? And He turns to His disciples and says, pray. Pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out workers into this field. And we're only talking about Galilee. We're only talking about Willow Springs to Durham, what about Greensboro and Winston-Salem and Charlotte? We haven't even gotten to any of the really big cities in our one middle-sized nation. What about the rest of the world? When Jesus says, you will do greater things than I have done, He is talking about taking the gospel that He has made possible, taking the salvation that He has purchased for every single man, woman, and child in this earth, and taking it to them, making that gospel actualized so that everyone really can believe when he's talking about doing greater works, he's talking about something that was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, not even two months after he spoke these words. Think about it for a second. Day of Pentecost, Peter stands up and preaches. The people who are listening to the disciples on that morning are astounded. They say, We are Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Pontus and Asia, from Phrygia and Pamphylia, from Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, Romans, Cretes, Arabs. All of these people are hearing the good news of Jesus Christ on that one day, the day of Pentecost. Jesus' ministry had been limited at that point to Galilee. Yes, He went down to Judea. Sure, He had interaction with a woman from Syrophoenicia. But He never made it to Rome. He didn't preach the good news in Libya. Mesopotamia didn't hear it from Him. On one single day, the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people from all over the known world came to Jesus Christ. And that was far more than we have any record of coming to faith in the three years of His own ministry. Jesus' promise to the disciples in John 14 was already fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. That's in Acts chapter 2. You go to Acts chapter 4. And suddenly now, not 3,000, 5,000 men alone. There's women and children as well. Acts chapter 6, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increases rapidly. Then you go through the rest of the book of Acts, and you see the gospel get all the way from Ethiopia to Rome. Because the disciples are doing the thing that Jesus sent them to do. The disciples are carrying out the greater work. of bringing the gospel to the ends of the world. And the key finally getting back to John chapter 14 verse 12. The key is the work of the Holy Spirit among them. Jesus says, "You will do greater works than these because I am going to the Father." And through the upper room discourse, whenever Jesus talks about going to the Father, he also talks about sending the Holy Spirit. In fact, in chapter 16, he says, unless I go to the Father, the Holy Spirit won't come to you. Jesus is in the flesh at that moment, just one man. But when he ascends to the Father, he can send the Spirit of Christ to every man, to every woman who believes in him commissioning us and empowering us to carry out the greater work that He has given us to do. That's what happened on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit filled up those disciples for the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ. And that is happening today. Now, the work of the Father is being carried out around the world. In the last decade, if you take all the statistics and try and eliminate the duplications, at least 300 million people around the world have come to faith in Jesus Christ. That works out to somewhere between 80 and 170,000 people a day. Every hour around the world is a day of Pentecost, with 3,000 people coming to Jesus Christ. In A.D. 100, so the disciples have done their work. They have been martyred. The gospel has gone out through them. About 0.3% of the world's population was believers. Today, it's somewhere between 7 and 10%. Just a couple hundred years ago, that was mainly A European-American church, now 54% of the church around the world is non-Anglo-European. In Mongolia, where 30 years ago there were no known churches, now there are 40,000 believers in hundreds of churches. In Nepal, where 40 years ago there were zero known believers, now the number is somewhere around a million who have come to Christ. In India, every month, approximately 15,000 people are baptized. And before things shut down for COVID and when we had more information available to us, we knew that the church in China was the fastest growing church around the world. And if history indicates anything, when things shut down, that's when the gospel spreads even faster. In South Korea, a hundred years ago, there were no known believers. Now approximately 30% of that country is made up of Christ followers. In South America, more than 10% of the population are gospel-believing people. And the center of missions has moved from Europe and North America to the majority countries of Asia and South America. Looking at our little Alliance family, there are less than 500,000 people in the United States who associate themselves with Alliance churches. The National Church in Indonesia, the Philippines, and the Ivory Coast is larger, the Alliance National Church, than here in the United States. There are 1.1 million people in Vietnam who are associated with Alliance churches, 1.5 million Alliance believers in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The greater works are being done. Jesus' promise is being carried out as men and women like you and me, filled with the Holy Spirit, go out and get the job done. And someday, Far beyond these millions or even hundreds of millions, there's going to be a vast crowd that no one can number, made up of people from every tribe and language and people and nation standing before the throne and lifting up the worthy name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we're headed because Jesus sent the Holy Spirit and promised greater works. Would be done. And I don't know about you, but when I think about that, I'm excited. But I do ask myself a question What about me? I want to see the greater works. I want to see people coming to Jesus. How can the greater works be seen in us? One of the applications that I saw in several commentaries was rightfully slamming the TV ministries that put their emphasis on miracles and success and money. You know the ministries I'm talking about. And it's a really convenient application, isn't it? Because that's them, not us. (laughs) It's really nice to be able to slam the people who are drawing attention to themselves by drawing attention to the physical, by drawing attention to the transient, the things that maybe we're doing or maybe not really doing, but they certainly result in popularity and money and increase in success and the size of ministries and they're glitzy and they're spectacular and they draw our attention. They appeal to our desire to see something physical. And concrete. But they're appealing to the transient. They're appealing to the temporary. And that application that goes out there is just as true right here. Maybe it's not spending my time performing miracles, but maybe it is spending my time accumulating wealth or advancing in my successes or making my life more comfortable. I was so very convicted this week. I'm pretty confident, well, dial back a little bit. Just got back from Congo, you know that. Ministry in Congo was great. Travel was awful. I just, I hate it. I can't sleep on airplanes and those long nights in the wee hours when you're absolutely miserable and can't move are awful. Then you get a good night's sleep and you think, okay, it was worth it, I'll go back. Well one of the things that I was able to enjoy having traveled a good bit over the last couple of years, was a little bit of status on the airline. And it made that miserable journey a little bit more comfortable, didn't it? Well, I am ashamed to admit to you how much time over the last week I spent calculating how I can maintain that status into next year so that I can be more comfortable on those airplane trips got a new credit card that's going to give me some bonus miles as well as some PCPs. I forget what that is on United, but it's some kind of points that hopefully are going to get me my status. And honestly, I will confess to you, I'm sure I spent more time on that than I spent in the Word this week apart from sermon preparation. I mean private time there. Satisfying or pursuing the satisfaction of the temporal and the transient over the very greatest thing that could ever happen, and that's the salvation of one soul. So let's do what Jesus said. Believing in Him, let's fall on the Holy Spirit to do His work in our hearts. If we allow the Holy Spirit to do His work in our hearts, He will rearrange our perspective from the things that are seen and that draw our attention and that call for our time to the things that are unseen. He will draw our attention from the temporary to the eternal. And that affects how we spend our time that affects what we do with our resources. It affects where we're focused. If we will allow the Holy Spirit to do His work in our hearts, He will rearrange our priorities. And I think that the primary emotion that will take over in regard to our fellow human beings is the same emotion that Jesus experienced. Compassion. We will look on people no matter how wretched our world is going and how offensive to us are the things that are said and done, we will look at people not primarily as enemies or as obstacles or as objects of wrath. We will look at people with compassion, the compassion that Jesus felt. I used to do something in Moscow, the metro stations just packed full of people. And I would spend a few minutes just looking at people and praying for them, recognizing that the vast majority had no knowledge of Jesus Christ. Let me advise you to do that. It changes your heart. Just a few minutes every day, sit and people watch, not because people are interesting or funny or odd, but to pray for the souls. Of people who don't know Jesus Christ. Our priorities will be rearranged as compassion, prayerful compassion, takes over our hearts. And then, if we allow the Holy Spirit to do His work in our lives, He will empower. It's been seen around the world. And it is seen among us. We're going to have a Baptism service in June. Because of miracles. People finding Christ. Dead souls being brought to life. May He multiply it over and over again. We might be discouraged at times as we look at the world around us. The disciples were discouraged in the upper room. As one commentator remind us, let us work on in faith and expect great things, though we feel weak and lowly, just like the disciples. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, weak and lowly, that is a good way to describe how often we feel. And if we don't feel it, remind us that, apart from Christ, that is what we are. In our flesh, so weak, so given to distraction and temptation, but filled with your Spirit and saved by your grace, can it be empowered to do greater things? And so our prayer this morning, Lord, is that you would open our eyes to see the wonderful work you have called us to and to fall on you for every resource that is necessary to bring glory to your name in the bearing of much fruit. For the sake of your kingdom,